Luke 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will him the throne of him, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. When is it okay to start playing Christmas music on the radio? Or, or, or when is it okay to start putting up Christmas decorations? We'll take a quick unscientific poll. I, I guess nearest to Christmas, I know people that say they have like a 21-day rule, so they back up three weeks from Christmas. They say three weeks out, you can start saying, okay, it's Christmas, we put up the decorations. Anybody like that? Any, any first day of December, people? Like it has to be December, cannot be November. Any like day after Thanksgiving, people? Or Thanksgiving night, people? Okay. Um, any, any people like as soon as Halloween is over? Okay, and that's, that's actually more and more of our culture where we live. It's like people go all out. They decorate as if it's Christmas, except it's skeletons and tombstones and stuff like that. And the moment the kids have all the candy gone that night from their front porch, that stuff is coming down and Christmas stuff is going up. And uh, some people just don't take stuff down at all. They just leave it up for the next year. And uh, with us being in the middle of a move right now and having our house listed, that's, I told Marty, I was like, we are, we are going to do the, if you know the Denver metro area rule, is like stock show, okay? So you can leave your Christmas stuff up all through the stock show and take it down at the end of January, and I'm pretty sure that's what we're going to do, okay? So yeah, it's, this is a fun season. It's a fun season for our culture, where we, because it is so dark and so cold and the days are shorter, we have countered that with this season of lights and tinsel and glitter and all things shiny. And we, um, even though it's the birth of the Christian Messiah, our entire society wants to celebrate for some reason. And we have almost like endless parties and opportunities for the Botanic Gardens have their lights and the zoo has their lights and just everyone has their thing. And the Denver Center for Performing Arts has special musicals and handles Messiah and plays and all these things. And uh, we like celebrating so much, we have invented ironic parties where we wear the ugliest thing possible and try to beat all our friends at looking horrible this time of year. 
Um, and I honestly think like the American way of doing Christmas, like this entire month is like we eat too much, drink too much, we spend too much, and then we get to January 1st and we're like, why am I overweight and exhausted and poor? It's because of how we treat this season. Okay, so yeah, Merry Christmas. Um, so if you don't know, like what, what was lit this morning is a more Christian liturgical thing. Liturgy is simply a, a word for worship. And there's a calendar almost of like how we go through the year. And I think Americans is like, we love Christmas and we love Easter. We, you know, Lent and Advent, stuff like that. You may come from a tradition that doesn't even look at those things and think about those things. So if you don't know, Advent is, comes from a Latin word that simply means arrival, the arrival of something. And of course, what we're doing is we are looking back to the first arrival or the first advent of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And as we enter this season, instead of just racing into the consumption and generosity of the Christmas spirit, we want to pause as a church, as people have done for a few thousand years, and remember, kind of enter into what it was like to wait before the Messiah came the first time. And simultaneously, as we situate ourselves between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, we're also doing this thing where we are looking forward to the second arrival, the second advent of Jesus. But we're kind of going to these scriptures over the next month and we're saying, what can we learn about the way people waited for Jesus? And maybe some of what they did was wrong. Maybe some of what they did was right. Maybe there's lessons to learn. But God met them in that place of waiting. And so I appreciate Richard has outlined for us kind of four portraits. We'll look at one this morning and then one each of the next three weeks. And again, we're just trying to say, like, what can we learn and, and just kind of wonder in amazement and, and faith as we look back? What can we learn about hope as we look forward? And uh, I love the, the symbolism of these candles. So these purple candles are basically one is lit each week of Advent. And part of Advent is the, like the light, just the dawning of the light that's going to overcome the darkness. And so this one candle that's lit represents the first week of Advent, and it'll burn all through the service, and then we'll extinguish it. And next week, we'll come back and light that candle plus another candle, and then extinguish them both. And then the third candle on the third week, and the fourth on the fourth week, and then on Christmas Eve, the Christ candle of like he's actually come into the world. But this is an actual visual representation because obviously this first candle is going to have a head start on burning down. And it's kind of showing us the passing of time that we're getting closer and closer to something. What is it we're getting closer and closer to? The arrival of Jesus that's going to change everything. So you can enjoy this just as a visual symbol of our worship over this coming month. Um, I want to take you back to, before I introduce this character that Maddie just read about, I want us just to remember, if you were one of God's covenant people, so you're a Jew, part of the nation of Israel, just before the Messiah came, you were not living in the Christmas spirit. Like there was no such thing, okay? They were, they were living in great darkness. In fact, it had been 400 years since God had sent a prophet with any new words from God. 
you know, one of the longest spans of passage in the Old Testament where they have no new information, no new word from the Lord. The Jews are a conquered people. They're vassals of the Roman Empire. They're paying taxes to Caesar Augustus for all his building projects. And they just feel like, God, where are you? Year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation, God, where are you? And will you ever keep your promise to deliver us, to come kind of make us your people and set up a kingdom that is yours? So we begin with the character Mary. We're just going to walk you chronologically through the story first, and then we're going to talk about a key theme that's kind of showing up in her life and what we can learn from it. So who is Mary? You know, she's introduced as this really little girl. So in, in the Jewish culture 2,000 years ago, a girl was usually betrothed between the ages of 12 and 14. So betrothal is like a commitment to be married to someone else. So their parents are kind of going off and the parents of the boy and the girl or the man and the woman are kind of negotiating this agreement about this marriage. And they have an official ceremony where they're betrothed and it's much more meaningful to them in their culture than simply like an engagement now, as significant as an engagement is, like I'm giving you this ring and with it a promise to keep myself for you and, and vice versa, but we're going to get married later on. Well, a betrothal of essentially a middle school girl would then last for a year. And she would continue to live at home with her parents. Her father would kind of be the main authority in her life. And this husband-to-be would go away and prepare a home for her. And then come back in a year. And they could interact during that year. But come back and have another ceremony and a feast where they officially like tie the knot as we think. And then live together and consummate their marriage sexually. So Mary is this middle school girl from Nazareth, which is some distance from Jerusalem, the capital of, you know, the, the Jewish kingdom as we would think of it. That's the place of the temple. That's the place of the priesthood. That's the place of the kings. When the kings ruled over Judah, they were there. And she's kind of off in Galilee, this northern region, a quiet little town. And what I want you to hear in this is Mary is a relative nobody from nowhere with essentially nothing. Just very, very simple life, very simple people, a very simple culture. And that's all interrupted in verse 28, uh, verse, verse 28, when Gabriel, this angel, comes from the Lord and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And I want to begin by saying, like, favored is a passive participle. So the idea is not that she is full of grace and she's giving that to other people and she's wonderful. The idea is, Mary, you have received a special grace from God. And you see her initial reaction. It says she's deeply troubled at the saying, which makes sense. It's a word that means distressed. Okay, so, you know, you just imagine, you know, your days, ladies, as a middle school girl, and you're sitting in your room quietly by yourself, probably at night, and I don't know what she's doing, journaling or trying to sleep or something, and suddenly there's an angel, and he's talking to you, and they're like, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Like, it's, it's okay that she's, uh, the translation to modern English would be like, she's freaked out. Like, what in the world? 
But then you notice this secondary reaction. It says, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. This is a very interesting word. It's dialogizomai or dialogizomai. We get our word dialogue from what she's doing. And a dialogue is a, is a back and forth. It's literally like a back and forth. One side shares and then another talks. So it's not a lecture, like kind of what I'm doing now, but it's a back and forth. And as you go back and forth in a dialogue, you're drawing certain conclusions. So basically it's like she's, she's reasoning thoroughly with herself and there's this mental argument going on. Like, I think, I think what I'm experiencing right now is like, am I awake? Okay, I pinched my, yep, okay, I'm awake. So this is really happening. Does it mean this or this? And that, that's kind of what she's doing. You see, Gabriel goes on, verse 31, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, we lose this because the angel would have said Yeshua, which is Hebrew for Yahweh is salvation. Yeshua, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, that Yah is short for Yahweh. Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And that's a title that they had for Almighty God, the God who is above everything. He is most high. There's nothing above him. There's nothing beside him. He's the sovereign God. So he's saying, you will conceive a son of the almighty God and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. So a Davidic king, this is the kingly line of Israel for all these years. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, which is another name for Israel forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So he's, he, the angel's giving Mary special information that this child born to you is not just like, okay, Joseph happens to be a descendant of David, many, 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 many generations separated. So yes, a king could come from the Joseph line. But he's saying this king from the Joseph line is a very special king because he will go on and on forever. And what Mary's now hearing as an observant Jew would be, this is the king. That has always been promised. This is the anointed one, or the word for it was the Messiah. Now look at verse 34. This is a reasonable question. How will this be since I am a virgin? And literally, she said, how will this be since I have not known a man? Okay. And I love that. It's like so sincere, so unpretentious. She's not like, yes, like whatever you say, God. She's like, no, 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 hold on. Like, I don't get it because... You know, we're betrothed, but we're not married. We're not together in a sexual way. So she's just saying, like, biologically this isn't possible. But I also don't want us to insert something back into the story that was never there. Okay? So Jewish people back then did not expect a Messiah to be born of a virgin. So it wasn't like every little Jewish girl was sitting there like, could it be me? Could it be me? Could it be me? And then she gets betrothed and married and she's like, well, no, it's not me. Like that didn't happen. They were expecting Messiah to come, but they didn't know how he would come. They didn't know when he would come. So she's not sitting there like, maybe it could be me. So it doesn't click with her of like, oh, it's me. God's chosen me for this special task that we all know about. She's like, I, I've never heard this. And this is biologically impossible. And I want to just pause there because one of the first principles is that, that waiting on God, as Mary was doing, doesn't necessarily mean you fully understand like what he's up to or how he's going to keep his promises. 
And as we wait on God, it's okay in our humanity to be confused about things, to be concerned about things, to be curious about things, to have questions. Like, I don't get it. You say this in your word, but I don't understand. And that's not, I, I don't hear any rebellion in what she's saying. She's like, how will this be? She's, she's honestly curious. And she gets her answer, verse 35. So she says, how is this possible? And Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so there's this picture, that word overshadow is literally to overshadow like a cloud. I don't know if you did this as a kid. I, I used to be like, wait, why is it? Suddenly, I remember the first time I realized that like clouds going over were casting a shadow and you go up in a plane or you go up on a mountain, you can see like how these shadows move across things. And that's the picture. There's nothing weird of like God or the gods like cavorting with Mary. It's simply this picture of a cloud essentially hovering over and casting this shadow. And I think all the way back to Genesis 1, the second verse of the Bible that in the beginning when God was there but things were not created, there's this picture of the Spirit of God hovering over the, the waters. And there's this creative act that comes from Almighty God as he just like hovers and broods over the waters. And that's a picture of kind of what, of, of what the Spirit is doing here or will do with Mary. Or later in Israel's history, you have this picture of this you know, this cloud, this pillar of cloud that led Israel through the wilderness. And then it would come down and descend on the holy place of the tabernacle. And it signified God's presence with his people, but there was this overshadowing and they could see it. And there's something like that going on here. So he's beginning to answer the question, how, how will you conceive a child as a virgin? And the angel is basically saying, well, the Holy Spirit's going to do this special, creative, powerful act to essentially make you the mother of the Son of God. And uh, though Mary doesn't ask for this, I want you to notice in verses 36 and 37, the angel gives her a sign. And she's a little girl. Like, how, how will I know that this will be? And he says, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And so Mary would have known who Elizabeth is. We'll find out later that Elizabeth lives in a different town, a different place. Mary probably doesn't know that she is six months pregnant, though she is well past the age of childbearing, if you read that story, which is also in Luke. And so he's like, I'll give you a sign. And you'll see here shortly, like Mary goes and checks it out that, yes, Elizabeth is pregnant, actually with John the Baptist, if you didn't know that. Um, but I love Mary's response, verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And here's a key word I want to give you this morning. It's the word surrender. Mary is exemplary in waiting in surrender. Because she, as she hears this, and there has to be this instant, not only fear, but but turmoil and angst and anxiety and questions and probably part of her being like, no, I don't want this. I don't understand this. Nevertheless, her words are basically, Lord, have your way in me. 
Like, I am your bondservant is the word that she used. Just let it be to me according to your word. And so for a few minutes this morning, I want to just pause with you and explore this key concept of surrender. And here's kind of a theme that we pick up on from Mary's life and the way that she waited. It's this, there is joy in waiting on God when you surrender to his person, his promises, and his plan. There's joy in waiting on God. Okay, there's, there's not just angst and fear and turmoil and the darkness and the sadness and the longing. There are those things. There are seasons of those things. But as she surrendered and turns her life over and says, God, to your person I surrender, to your promises I surrender, to your plan I surrender, she finds joy and praise. So let's walk through this. I think there's like five things here that surrender means. And it means these for Mary, it means these for us. Number one, surrender means welcoming God's presence into your life. Surrender means welcoming God's presence into your life. I mean, this is incredible. The angel Gabriel basically tells Mary, God wants to move in to your life, literally. And this is important that when Jesus finally arrives, when the Messiah finally arrives, he is not a mental construct or a concept to believe. He is not a set of rules for her to obey. He's a living God for her to accept into the interior of her life. And family, it's, it's hard to imagine a more intimate relationship than the relationship between a mother and the infant growing in her womb, literally inside of her. It's also hard to imagine a more disruptive relationship or a more sacrificial relationship. And ladies, you know, and husbands, you know, and even siblings, as you see maybe mom go through another pregnancy and the toll that it takes on her sleep and her health and her eating habits and all these other things as this child is literally growing inside her, I think it's a picture that like Mary could not continue to do life as before and simply add Jesus as an addendum. It's like Jesus is coming in and you're going to have to completely reorient your life around God's presence. And I think it's a lesson for us that as we wait on the Lord's return, we're not called to just add him to the stuff that we're already doing and say, well, here are my relationships, here are my priorities, here's the way I think about hot button issues and Jesus can be added to me, you know, because I'm a Christian, so long as he accommodates who I already am, what I already think. She's doing the very opposite and we are called to the very opposite of saying, Lord, move into the center of my person and I want to orient my life around your presence. I want to make major adjustments to my priorities, my schedule, my budget, my thinking, my convictions, because you're here and surrender means welcoming God's presence into my life. Number two, this is primarily from verse 38, but from the whole context, surrender means saying no to your own hopes and dreams in order to say an unconditional yes to God's. Now think about this. You got a small town preteen or teen girl betrothed but now in this traditional honor shame culture she's saying yes 
to conceiving a child out of wedlock. So as Mary says yes, an unconditional yes, no ifs, ands, or buts, just let it be to me according to your word, I'm guessing one of the very first things that she's processing in that kind of culture is I'm going to be a single mom forever. There will be no Joseph in my life when it is discovered that I am pregnant out of wedlock because he knows it's not his baby, okay? So this means shame for her. This means a reputational hit for, she's still living at home with her parents. So what does that mean for her family? Like you couldn't do a good job of taking care of your daughter. What does this mean for the baby that's gonna be born to her? And, and I'm not making this up because of the religious leaders, when Jesus is an adult, they come back to him and they ridicule him. And they're like, at least we know who our father is, implying that he's an illegitimate child. And we gotta see in this story, Mary is trading away a simple uncomplicated life in essence for an unknown. She's taking the risk of losing everything that someone in a traditional culture would have valued in order to obey the word of the Lord. And I want you to notice that Mary isn't passive in this story. She's not just like laying down. I mean, like, fine. Passivity is, is way too weak for what she's doing. She's actively surrendering. She's actively laying it down. She's, that, that dialogue, that inner dialogue that she had going, she's counting the cost and saying, I surrender. And so I encourage us this morning and throughout this Advent season, as we're waiting on God, it's important for us to process through what are my hopes and plans and dreams? What do I want most in life? You may be like, well, I want to be married, or now I'm married and I want kids, or I want a successful career. I want respect. I want a reputation. You know, some of you maybe have already made it substantially financially, like you're okay, even through an inflation or a period of inflation. But you're like, what I really want is a reputation now. And surrendering to God may mean tremendous loss in essence of some of these things. You're like, this is my plan. And this is how it's going to go. I'm going to go do this, and then I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. And if it goes like this, here's where I'm going to land. Here's where I'm going to get out of that. And oftentimes, I think what we do as Christians even is we add God to our plans, and he's a means to an end. It's like, God, I've planned it all out, and I'm going to pray for you to, like, fulfill my wishes. Like, you're the genie in the lamp. And I'm conjuring you up, and I'm praying to you, and I'm saying, can you do for me these things that I want you to do? And notice this, this beautiful, humble, faithful attitude of Mary where she's like, I had my plans. I had my hopes, my dreams. It's not going to go that way. Nevertheless, let it be done to me according to your word. Number three, surrender means believing before you fully understand. And you notice that in the story. Mary has questions, reasonable questions. She probably had some funny questions too, but she had, she had questions. And she's like, okay, I believed that Messiah was coming into this world. I didn't know when, I didn't know where, I didn't know how, I didn't know through whom, like it's me. Um, but I believe God would fulfill his promise to send this savior king. 
And there isn't a doubt in her mind that God is going to keep that massive promise to send a Messiah. But then the angel announces to her, you're going to give birth to this son conceived by the Holy Spirit. And there, there is no way a 12, 13, 14-year-old girl is wrapping her mind around that. Of Like, oh, okay, I, that makes sense. I understand that. She doesn't understand. What she does do is she believes. She trusts. And I want you to see this in verse 45 because as the story goes on, Mary does, as I said, she goes and visits Elizabeth. And this is kind of interesting. Like, uh, you know, the first person to recognize the Savior, maybe, maybe Mary, but it doesn't say that explicitly. The first person to recognize the Savior and to rejoice, to celebrate that the Savior is coming into the world was an unborn baby. It was John the Baptist. He leaps in Elizabeth's womb for joy in the presence of his Savior King. Elizabeth says a number of things. There's a dialogue here. You can read it later. But I want to I focus on verse 45, where as Elizabeth is interacting with Mary, this is what she says. She says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Why is Mary blessed? She's like, because you, you just knew. God will fulfill. He'll do exactly what he said. And, and Elizabeth may be sitting there and being like, my conception was highly improbable. Yours was impossible. Yet you believed that God would do what he said he was going to do. And I want us to understand as we are waiting on the Lord to return, there's a difference between understanding and trusting. There's a difference between understanding and trusting. Are there not things that you read in the Bible and you're like, I, I don't get this or even necessarily fully agree with this. I'm wrestling with this or something's happening in your life and it's painful and you're being led into patience and then God's taking things away from you. You're like, I, I thought you were going to work through that. Why did you give me this thing just to take it away? And you're like, I don't understand. I mean, I got a, I got a ton of things I don't understand. But there's a difference between understanding and trusting. I mean, most of you know we have, you know, we have three kids. One of them, our youngest, is, is particularly, persnickety is saying it nicely when it comes to anything on the table in front of him. Um, he's a tiny little human because he just does not eat food. Uh, we told him, he turns eight in a couple weeks, and we're like, eight sounds like eight. Like the number eight sounds like A-T-E. So when you turn eight, okay, you're going to eight what we put on the table in front of you. Um, but very often we, we run through this thing where we'll, we'll be like, can you take one bite of the, like Thanksgiving, can you take one little tiny bite of the turkey? And you'd think we were trying to poison him. <laughs> and, and sometimes we're like, okay, you don't have to understand what this is, but do you not try? And I'm like, has mom ever given you something that's like dangerous for you? And it's like, eat this. It's like a dare or... We're just trying to get rid of you. And he's like, well, no. And I was like, then just eat it, okay? You don't have to understand. You do have to trust. And if you have little kids, you see this work out all the time where it's like your, your cognitive recognition of what's going on has not arrived at the place that most of your parents or even an older sibling has. So parents all the time are like, can you just trust me? Can you just do the thing even if you don't understand? And how much more so with God who is unlimited in his wisdom and has planned all these things that we're like, I, I don't, 
I don't see how this gets me where I want to go or even someplace good that I don't want to go. And I think an application here is this attitude of Mary where it's like there's a host of things I don't understand. And I'm still wrestling with them in my mind. But I believe. And by the way, if you're waiting to fully understand God before you trust him and follow him, then that's not actually faith. Okay, if everything makes perfect sense to you, then you've just waited until it made perfect sense to you. That's not faith. That's like I, I've reasoned through it. Now, Christianity is very reasonable, but God's calling you to trust him with that thing in your life, friend, that seems completely unfair or it is completely unfair, not just that it seems that way. It's unjust. You were wronged. And you're like, I don't understand. Why me? Why this? This is not only counterintuitive to what I know to be true about God, but it just seems wrong. And one of my favorite little thoughts, because I have to have little thoughts. One of my favorite little thoughts is, and I don't remember who said it, and a lot of people take credit for being the first that said it, is simply this. My father, I do not understand thee, but I trust thee. And that's Mary's attitude. It's, it's a heart of surrender. Surrender means, my father, I do not understand thee, but I trust thee. Surrender means believing before you fully understand Let's look back at the text because this fourth part of surrender is this. Surrender means praising God for what he will do as if he's already done it. So as we go on in the story and we stop short of this, there's this interaction between Elizabeth and Mary. Elizabeth blesses Mary and Mary responds this way, beginning in verse 46. And this is known as the Magnificat. Okay, And if you're like, oh, the Magnificat is Catholic. Well, no, it's not. It's Christian scripture, okay? And it comes from the first word in Greek of the poem or the song, which is magnifies. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now notice this. I said this principle is surrender means praising God for what he will do as if he's already done it. And that's one of the stunning things to me. It's thematic throughout the Magnificat is that Mary's praising in past tense what God has not yet done. Like she has the seed, she has the kernel of this promise planted in her, as it were, but she hasn't seen any of the fruit. She hasn't seen any proof that this little baby is really the Messiah, really able to forgive sin, really able to liberate people, let alone do the things that the Jews thought the Messiah was going to do. And yet here she is singing and praying and praising God, saying, 
I have already received mercy. I have already been blessed. I have already been exalted. I have already been satisfied with every good thing. And I think as we apply this to ourselves and we're waiting, it's one thing to look back in our lives and to praise God for what he has done. And there's a huge place for that in our lives. And that's all throughout the Psalms. It's like, Lord, you have done great things to me. And in fact, we take those things that God has done for us and we declare them to the next generation. Because even if they don't see stuff in their life, we're like, look at what God has done for me. He will do similar things for you. And even though she hasn't seen it, she's like, but I, I believe. And she's doing this at least three ways. She's, she's praising God for who he is. And she's like, you are holy. You are merciful. You are the savior. You are all these things. And it's like, but again, he hasn't done that for you yet. He hasn't done that for the people yet. He certainly hasn't lived a life and died on the cross, laid down his life and taken it up again in the resurrection. He's, none of that's happened yet. But she's like, but you said you're a sovereign and good and powerful and merciful God. And so I believe it and I'm gonna praise you for it. And she's praising God for what he's promised as if it's already been fulfilled. And she's praising God for what he's given, even though she only has the kernel of it. And as I said, she hasn't seen the fruit, but she's like, God has given me all of this. I am satisfied. He has done great things for me. And you're like, well, what has he done so far, Mary? You're, you're in the middle of this shame period of your life. And we'll talk about Joseph in a separate sermon, but Joseph is, we don't know where he's at at this particular moment, but at least there's one moment where he's like, I loved her and she broke my heart and I'm going to put her away or divorce her quiet. Like I don't want to bring more shame to her than has already brought, been brought on her by her own actions. But even Joseph doesn't believe initially. But she's like, God has done great things for me. And how would it transform our own waiting for God to come again and to set all things right? If we're not just waiting of like, nope, you haven't done it yet. I don't see it. And have like this cynical, sarcastic, constantly disappointed attitude with God versus leaning into the things. And it's like, well, you said you're this kind of God and I'm going to praise you right now because you're that kind of God. And if I see like just the, if I see just this much light coming into my situation and into our city and into our world through the gospel, I'm going to praise you as if it's, like the dawn has come and it's brilliant. And then one more thing for us, surrender means remaining humble and hungry. This is a huge part of her prayer. She recognizes in her culture, the Roman Empire. Who, who do the Romans want on their team? They want the proud. They want the powerful. They want the prosperous. These are the people that get the reputations. These are the people that get the positions of honor. And as Mary is waiting on the Lord, she can see, okay, this is, this is what my Jewish religious culture honors, and this is what the Roman secular culture honors, and yet there's a different kind of person she understands that God honors. It's the lowly. It's the, it's the humble and the hungry. God honors the humble and the hungry. And one particular feature of Mary's song that jumps out at me is she implicitly understands in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus, there is a reversal of the weak and the strong. Because she's like, yeah, Caesar's coming. And he's like, all right, who can, who can work for me? Who can do what for me? And Jesus is coming. And King Jesus, like, because he's 
king because he's God. He's like, I don't, I don't need your wisdom. I don't need your strength. I don't need your money. I, I own it all. You're simply stewards of it. And so he's free as the true king to just be like, you're lowly, you're humble, you're broken, you're needy, you're helpless and hopeless, but you're hungry. And oh, what God can do with people that are lowly but hungry. God, I hunger and thirst for you. I don't want to fill my life with what everyone else is filling their lives with. And so she's just like, God, I'm, I'm humbled. I'm grateful for your grace. So as you wait on the Lord today, are you truly, part of what we want to do with this season is not, again, just, we're not just racing into the like joy and celebration and consumption of Christmas. We're like, is there a period, is there a pattern of longing in my life? Like when God isn't doing the things that I wish he would do, and he's certainly not doing them when I wish he would, am I waiting with a sense of longing and hopefulness and hunger a number of years ago, uh, Marty and I, some of our best friends, and some of you knew them, they were, they were part of our church out in East Denver years ago, moved to the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And I would find any and every excuse to go visit them because I love New York City and because they were really good friends and are really good friends. And uh, one time I fly into LaGuardia in the middle of the day. I'm like, well, it's like 2 p.m., 3 p.m. here. I'm really hungry. I've been, you know, on a flight for several hours and then the Uber into... Manhattan and through the tunnel and all that. And so I just like, you know, it's, it's, it's New York City. And so there's amazing food everywhere, right? You just can't walk anywhere without all the smells and sights. And I'm like, okay, so I'll get a little bit of that and get a little bit of that and do this over here. And then my friend Carl gets off work and he's like, all right, I got this amazing evening planned. And he's like, we're going to go to this restaurant and then we're going to go here and then we're going to desserts over here. And it's just... And I'm like, oh, shoot, that all sounds way better than what I just ate. And I am not hungry. Um, and I you know, probably made myself sick that night trying to force myself to eat some of these amazing things that my friend knew about. I, I think part of what we're doing in our Christian lives is we're a little bit like that. We're just like, oh, I'm hungry. Ooh, satisfaction. And, and we just put other things in there. And instead of staying hungry the way that Mary stayed hungry and prayed hungry. We just look for something from our culture, from our world, even from church culture, that's not God. And we try to satisfy ourselves with that. And then God is there as we wait on him. And we're like, well, that, that looks great, God, but I'm stuffed. And I just want you to see this, that she, she simply surrendered, not, not fully understanding, counting the cost, arguing it out in her own mind, but then just saying, let it be done to me according to your word. And then the joy came. Okay, so she's not starting with praise of like, yes, you chose me. This is so awesome because you're this kind of God. Like she has to argue herself into it, but by surrender. And it's so counterintuitive. We think, we think surrender, giving up my plans, my dreams, my hopes, my step-by-step -step of how I'm going to get what I want, when I want. It's going to lead to like disappointment, frustration with God, impatience. This is going to take me in a completely different direction than what I want to go. 
And, and what people who actually surrender find and stay hungry is, yes, this is very costly. There's a death to self, but now I come truly alive. And I want us to come truly alive as individuals and as a church as we wait through this Advent season by learning to wait with this kind of heart of surrender.